Next Friday marks the start of an all-new season here at Unsolved Mysteries. Tune in for these intriguing cases. In the 1960s and 70s, an unknown killer called the Zodiac terrorized Northern California. In the 1980s and 90s, the infamous Unabomber terrorized the nation. Now a startling scenario. Could the Unabomber and the Zodiac be the same man? When young Trish Zemba was struck by a debilitating nerve disorder, doctors said only a miracle could save her from a lifetime of pain. And Trish believes one did. Join me next Friday for all this and much more on the exciting season premiere of Unsolved Mysteries. Morning, everyone. Let's uh, let's start with rolling that video. Next Friday marks the start of an all-new season here at Unsolved Mysteries. Tune in for these intriguing cases. In the 1960s and 70s, an unknown killer called the Zodiac terrorized Northern California. In the 1980s and 90s, the infamous Unabomber terrorized the nation. Now a startling scenario. Could the Unabomber and the Zodiac be the same man? When young Trish Zemba was struck by a debilitating nerve disorder, doctors said only a miracle could save her from a lifetime of pain. And Trish believes one did. Join me next Friday for all this and much more on the exciting season premiere of Unsolved Mysteries. So uh, anyone else kind of in my 30-something age group that remembers that show from when they were a kid and and just found it utterly terrifying? Um, I remember that voice and that creepy music. It's just the stuff of nightmares. But but, uh, anyhow, if if you have no idea what I'm talking about or if you've never seen or heard of this, Unsolved Mysteries was a show back in the late 80s, early 90s, and they investigated, believe it or not, Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, All kinds of things, too, like everything from... Like bizarre conspiracy theory stuff, UFO sightings and paranormal activity, to cold cases, uh, medical mysteries, all those kind of things. And uh, missing persons. And, and part of it for some of those was there'd be opportunity at the end, they'd put a phone number up, and if you had any clues that you thought might solve the mystery, uh, you could phone in. And they did, they did solve missing person cases and, and some crime cold cases as well from people... Uh, phoning in. One of the things that was kind of unique about this show was that they would, it was kind of a combination of, they do interviews with the people involved, but also reenactment and I mean some of it they had to use the special effects of the day and the late 80s and early 90s, some of it was was a little bit on the cheesy side and a lot of the people acting in it were the actual people that this had happened to and they weren't professional actors and there was there's a little bit of a, a you know, it was serious but also a little bit humorous but also a little bit creepy because of that. One of the most interesting cases that they discussed on this show, and some of you probably remember this happening, uh, was the 1971 hijacking of Northwest Airlines Flight 305 by D.B. Cooper. Cooper boarded the flight from Portland to Seattle, lit up a cigarette because you could smoke pretty much anywhere back in, in the 1970s, and uh, ordered himself a bourbon and soda. Uh, Passed the flight attendant a note that he was hijacking the airplane. 
uh, showed her that he had several sticks of TNT wired up to a battery in his briefcase because they, they didn't, no one thought to like check you for bombs and weapons boarding an aircraft back in those days. And he demanded that when they landed in Seattle that he would be given $200,000 in cash and four parachutes and the plane would be refueled and he would be uh, continuing on. They got there, they refueled the plane, he allowed most of the passengers, all the passengers and most of the crew to vacate the aircraft and then he instructed the flight crew to fly the plane at low altitude and low speed to Mexico City. They couldn't make it to Mexico City at low speed so they planned a fueling stop in Reno and somewhere between Seattle and Reno he bailed out of the back hatch of the airplane and was never seen again. But... In 1980, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family in the area, and while he was playing alongside a riverbank, he discovered two bundles of $20 bills, which were part of the ransom that was paid to D.B. Cooper. They had recorded the serial numbers. And so to, to this day, there has been this conspiracy theory about who was this guy, and did he survive the parachute jump? Did he just survive it and return to normal life? Did he die in the attempt? If, if he did survive the jump, why has the money never turned up at a casino or a bank other than this two bundles that was found alongside of the river? And the list of possible suspects has grown and grown and the FBI has never pinned it on anyone. People have actually confessed to being D.B. Cooper, but none of their stories actually have ever held up and been able to account for all the details. So to this day, his identity and whether he survived the jump remains a mystery. Today, the Apostle Paul tells us about a mystery. Uh, its scope dwarfs even the most complex of conspiracy theories, but the solution to this mystery is, well, it's actually not all that mysterious. It's kind of interesting, though. So if you would like to stand, as we typically do for the reading of our sermon text, we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll be reading the first 13 verses. Ephesians 3. And he uses the word mystery in this passage quite a number of times, so pay attention to that. Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. This is God's word. You may have a seat. 
Paul uses the word mystery here a number of times. This is noteworthy, but it's very important that we correctly understand how he's using this word. Uh, would have been important for Paul's original audience too, and it's certainly important for us. So what is the mystery, and what does it mean for those of us who would be disciples of Jesus? Now some commentators have noted it's, it's actually, kind of, actually kind of puzzling uh, that Paul would use this word as much as he did, uh, given its connotations in pagan worship. The pagan world of first century Asia Minor, and Ephesus in particular, was devoted to what were called mystery religions. These were worship systems whereby converts were initiated further and further into secret rituals and teachings that weren't available just to people that were uninitiated. It's the basic structure, right, of an elite group within an elite group within an elite group, and you can just keep drawing concentric circles over and over as many times as you want. These sorts of things are still around today. Uh, Mormonism has elements of it, Scientology, many other groups that we would call cults have this kind of structure where it's a structure within a structure within a structure and, and secret things and, and initiations and that type of stuff. Anyone can join, but as you become more committed, uh, there, there's further levels within that aren't known to outsiders or even the average adherent. So this is brewing in the background of what Paul's talking about when he says mysteries. Of course, when we think of mysteries... We think of something rather different. We think of detective-type mysteries, cold cases, missing persons, FBI investigations, and so forth. Stuff like the D.B. Cooper airplane hijacking. Mysteries, whether real or fictional, usually play out in a pretty predictable type of fashion. There are the events that happened leading up to, to the crime or the event. There's the before time. Things are going along in a pretty predictable and well-established fashion. And at some point, though, they start sliding toward the crime being committed or the event happening, whether that's somebody going missing, someone being killed, whatever it is. There's usually agreement, though, on what those events were. And in the hijacking case, right, there, he got on the plane he had a briefcase with dynamite in it. He, he passed the note to the flight attendant. That's all well established. And then there's, there's the aftertime or the results of what happened, right? The plane landed in Reno and was empty. The, back stair, the hatch and the back stairs were opened. The money was eventually discovered, a small portion of it. But what happened in the middle, that's the mystery. Nobody, nobody saw what happened. Nobody knows what happened to this guy. He just disappeared. That's the mystery. And the plot of any mystery, whether that's a mystery novel or a mystery TV show or movie, is detectives and other people trying to piece together and figure out what happened in that unknown middle event. So they'll search what happened before and what happened afterwards and turn it inside out, trying to find some bit of evidence that was overlooked, someone that said something or saw something or did something, such that they can piece it together and figure out what happened in that unknown middle some bit of evidence that will blow the whole thing open and reveal what happened there. If they can find that, then the mystery is solved. And if nothing turns up, the mystery remains a mystery. And typically in a crime scene, it's, it's called a cold case. But neither of these, the ancient conception or our modern conception, seem to be what Paul's talking about. As he so often does, he challenges both his own contemporaries and our modern sensibilities. So let's take a look at what Paul says here. What is the mystery? What is it about? How can it be solved? Does it even need to be solved? 
But in order to make sense of that, we'll have to leave behind some of these ingrained assumptions about how mysteries work in detective novels. The first thing to note is that Paul says the mystery was made known to him by revelation in verse 3. It's important to note what he does and doesn't say here. He doesn't say the solution to the mystery was made known to him. He just says the mystery was made known to him. I'm already getting ahead of myself, though. For Paul, it seems that a mystery is not so much a set of circumstances in need of a solution, but rather this whole new way of conceiving reality that nobody would have ever thought of before. Our earlier scripture reading that Ken read for us included one of the few uses of mystery in the Old Testament. Now, the the background to that story is that King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that was very perplexing and troubling to him. And he called for his wise men to interpret the dream, except there's a catch. He didn't tell the wise men what his dream actually was, either because he was having trouble remembering it by that point or because he was just testing them, whatever. In any case, he wants his magicians and wise men to tell him the contents of the dream and then give him the proper interpretation. And of course they can't. And because Nebuchadnezzar is a cruel despot, he orders them all killed. Okay. But Daniel prays to God, and the Lord reveals to him not only the contents of the king's dream, but also the interpretation of it. And if you remember the story, it was that he dreamed of this statue, the body parts of which were made of different metals and things. And Daniel interpreted to the king that this revealed kind of a peek back behind the curtain of world history and how God was ordering things in the history of the world and the empires and the kings that would succeed one another down throughout the ages as God's plan for human history unfolded. Here's the thing. The kind of mystery that Daniel was involved with, it wasn't the kind of thing that you could just solve if you had one or two other clues and be like, oh, I, I, I see it all now. This is, this is how it's all going to play out. It wasn't looking at world events and just making an educated guess or something like that. The Lord revealed to Daniel things that he could not have known otherwise. Things he could have never figured out on his own, by his own wisdom. It wasn't that he just needed one or two other facts to put all the other pieces together. He didn't have any of the facts. He didn't even know the contents of the king's dream. It all had to be revealed to him by the Lord. And it seems like Paul is talking about something similar here. It's not that just he lacked a vital bit of information about the ways of God that would enable him to figure it all out and put the pieces together. The realization that there even was a mystery and the solution to that mystery were both of the same piece. And for Paul, they both came by revelation. And of course, that mystery that Paul's talking about centers around Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Paul mentions that his insight into the mystery of Christ has been made known by God. And it's plausible to translate the phrase, not just the mystery of Christ, but even the mystery which is Christ. It's it's that close of a connection. What does that mean? Right? What does that mean? I think it's this. Understanding Jesus, truly understanding him, can't be something we undertake on purely human terms or by human efforts only. It's not just a matter of taking the known facts and putting them together, trying to come up with some kind of coherent, okay, here's what really happened, or here's who the historical Jesus really was. That's missing the point. This is Paul's story. 
Paul when he was still Saul, when he was still a persecutor of the church. He knew the facts about Jesus, at least from a historical, physical standpoint. And he had come to his own conclusions about what those facts meant. From a purely human point of view, and from Paul's vantage point in in Pharisaic Judaism, there was only one conclusion, and it wasn't all that mysterious. The conclusion was that Jesus of Nazareth was this upstart rabbi with no legitimate credentials, who was a false teacher and who taught blasphemous things and was rightly put to death for his blasphemy. And that that claim about his so-called resurrection, of course, that was troubling to fit into Paul's account of how everything went down. But with the proper force, that could be that could be stamped out, and and the Jesus movement as such could be done away with, and the people of God could be purified of this nonsense. But that all changed for Paul that afternoon, right, on the Damascus Road. He was going up to Damascus to persecute some followers of Jesus who lived up there. And it changed in the most abrupt manner possible. It wasn't just that he figured out some new little piece on his own, in his own wisdom, that made him go, Ah, I see now. The Lord stopped him dead in his tracks, and and the light shone around him, and he was thrown to the ground. I remember the voice saying, Why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. His whole world, his whole conception of reality just got flipped upside down. It went from Jesus was a false teacher whose movement needed to be stopped to, wait, Jesus is, Jesus is Lord. And what turned that around was the self-revelation of Jesus Christ, something Paul would have never come to on his own. It had to come by revelation. Do you see how Paul is understanding mystery here? It's different than how we think of it. It's not that he was on the hunt for truth and finally found the missing piece of information that allowed him to solve the case. In fact, he was going in the totally opposite direction. He had come to his own conclusions about Jesus, and he only came to realize the truth by the divine intervention when the Lord spoke those words, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. In our understanding of how mysteries work, we normally feel pretty certain about the before and after, and like I said, we just are trying to figure out the event in the middle what happened or who done it but for paul once he finally grasped the event itself god's self-revelation in jesus christ it didn't just make sense of everything before and after it, it blew the whole thing to pieces once you grasp the revealed truth about jesus christ that he is lord it forces you to reconsider everything you thought you knew Look at verse 9, where Paul talks about the mystery a bit more in the context of God's plan in the unfolding ages. I think it's pretty safe to assume Paul probably had a a pretty definite idea of how God's plan was playing out in the ages throughout history as it related to Israel, the nation, the temple, the Mosaic law, keeping separate from Gentiles, and so forth. But the revelation of the mystery of God in Jesus, the revelation that Jesus was Messiah and Lord, sent shockwaves rippling backward into his understanding of all that God had been doing up until then throughout the history of his people. Now, it's not that there weren't hints about what God was up to in the Old Testament. There were places that predicted that Messiah would suffer. There were places that promised a new covenant. But Paul said that he and and the vast majority of his fellow Israelites didn't have eyes to see it. God's revelation in Jesus shook even Paul's most fundamental assumptions of what he'd been up to all along and how. 
forced him to reconsider everything he thought he knew about the before time. Of course, the revelation of God in Jesus didn't shake up just Paul's understanding of the before time and all that had been going on in history up until now. It also seriously shattered his understanding of how things were going to be now going forward into the future. If you were here last week, Michael Powelke talked a bit about how serious the Jew-Gentile divide was in the ancient world. And most of us, we don't really understand this. Most of us probably don't even know any Jewish people. And if we do know some Jewish people, probably they're more progressive or secular even Jews who don't visibly look different. Maybe, maybe they don't eat pork you know, maybe they worship on Saturday and, and have some different holidays than we do, but they, they're not that different than we are. Most of us don't know, say, like Hasidic or, or Orthodox Jews who dress in a unique fashion and have very different customs and ways of doing things. You don't see, see those people much living around us. But in ancient times, the Jew-Gentile distinction, this was a, a primary division of humanity and one that was kind of agreed upon by both sides, right? The Gentiles were... Jewish people are, they do things really differently, and we're just going to let them do their own thing. They kind of had special uh, privileges in the Roman system where they were exempted from the Roman imperial cult and other things like that. They were permitted to kind of just do their own thing. And for the Jewish people, the Gentiles, they're, they're pagans. They, they, are, they don't worship the true God. They don't eat clean food. All kinds of things. They were just separate. And you can see why they would be okay with that, right? For most of Israel's history, they were just getting pummeled upon by one dominant world power or another. One after the next after the next. We can easily see that there's no love lost between Jews and Gentiles. And to say nothing of the fact that Israel's scriptures continually reminded them to keep separate from Gentiles and not adopt their ways. And whenever they did, things went badly. So by Paul's time, this was a major divide. And it was total, right? Race, ethnicity, religion, social practices, business, commerce practices, diet, marriage, sexuality, very different ways of going about life and conceiving the world. And yet the Apostle Paul has the audacity to say that in Christ, the distinction is done away with, and the distinction is done away with in such a way that Gentiles can now be partakers of all the promises that pertained to Israel, all God's blessings on his people Israel. Now, that, was a rad- that was an offensive thing to say. But Paul makes it clear in verse 7, this is the content of the mystery and the outworking of the gospel that the Lord revealed to him and that he's been going all over the known world preaching. This is huge. This is a major turn of events in the history of humanity that nobody really saw coming up until now, right? This is like if the solution to that mystery about D.B. Cooper was that D.B. Cooper was actually the flight attendant's ex-husband and she hijacked the plane, demanded a parachute, and then threw him out of the back and threw the parachute out separate just as a way to get rid of him and pocketed the 200K, right? That's a, whoa, conspiracy theory. Like, this is, this is a thing nobody thought coming, right? This, this is a whole new way of putting those pieces together. That's a bit on the morbid side, perhaps, but not nearly as shocking as the plot twist Paul's talking about. 
think we can adequately convey or really even understand how out there Paul's statements about Jew-Gentile relations going forward would have seemed, right? For him to say, oh yeah, the, the mystery is that I'm telling you is that Gentiles are now partakers of God's promises. You can, you can imagine Jewish believers in Jesus going, seriously, Paul? Ser- like, without, without being circumcised? Are, are you sure about that? Yes. Seriously, Paul, though, like, but they can't eat bacon, right? Because that, that's, that's not, no, Paul's fine. They can eat that. But, but, but Paul, how will, how will Jesus' followers be any different than anybody else if they don't have to do all the things that kept us separate all these years? Now, I realize that this discussion can get us into some pretty treacherous territory regarding the relationship between Israel and the church, and particularly when we start throwing eschatology into the mix. I want to sidestep that a bit, not out of, not out of cowardice or because, well, we just will ignore that and hope it goes away, but in order to see what Paul is truly talking about here. Paul, so far as I can tell, wasn't out to start a new religion called Christianity. He saw what God had done in Jesus as the goal and even the climax of God's people, Israel, and really all of humanity. For Paul, it wasn't about starting a separate Gentile thing called the church as a distinction from Israel. For Paul, the ultimate mark that God's spirit was at work and that the message, the good news about Jesus was taking root The ultimate proof of all that was the coming together of Jews and Gentile believers in Jesus into this one body, worshiping him together. The idea was not that differences just got watered down to the point that they didn't matter any longer, nor was it that one side's differences just kind of got assimilated into the others. Rather, it was in Christ they had such a common center and a common focal point that they could be bound together as a family. Paul asserts that in Christ, Gentiles were partakers together with Israel of God's promise. Primary among God's promises, and this is a refrain, if you read through the Old Testament, you hear it again and again and again in one form or another. This wonderful refrain, I will be their God and they will be my people. You want something that will unite? Well, there it is. We can talk about uniting around this or that, this mission or this vision or this, this purpose or this cause, but if anything is worth uniting around, if anything has power to make real unity possible, this has to be at the bottom of it. In Christ, I will be your God, you will be my people. If anything is worth uniting around, that has to be at the core of it. For Paul, a successful church was not, not defined by how good their programs were, how, how kicking their worship was, or even how exciting or engaging or practical or any other adjective their preaching and teaching was. I'm sure people in the first century world cared about those things too. But a successful church was defined in large part for Paul by whether Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, men and women, were being brought together in Christ to worship the Lord God. I'm not here to throw stones at this church or any particular expression of the church. But I do fear, however, that we're usually too eager to align, and too frequently align means go our separate ways, along preference, 
rather than unite around what we have in Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to say that there are, there are easy answers. Sincere Christians and church denominations have, have significant theological differences that are really incredibly hard to reconcile one with another. They have those differences, but you know what? They did in Paul's day as well. And we're certainly not going to solve all of these, these issues in the few minutes remaining to us. I know some of you have Thanksgiving dinners, probably waiting at home, cooking in the oven perhaps, that you, you need to get home to. So we're not going to try to solve one of the greatest mysteries in theology in, in the few minutes remaining to us. But we won't be the kind of church Paul is calling us to be if we're content to kind of take a, just a shallow surface level understanding of what a church or what the church even is. Too often, I think, we think of church as, as an event or, or, worse yet, even a performance. We attend on Sunday mornings, and sometimes, if we're really honest, we attend it primarily for our own benefit. But what might get us started is realizing that we're one body who partakes together of the promise that the Lord God is our God and we are his people. We're gathering here for him, not primarily for us. You're not the audience, and me and whoever else is up on this stage aren't the performers. We're all gathering here, and God is the audience and the object of our worship, right? Too often we fall into the trap of wanting our preferences met, whereas Paul emphasized that it's more important to set them aside for the greater good and unity of the body. Ultimately, what happens when we gather for worship isn't directed toward us. It's directed toward God. Now, perhaps our issue is not Jew-Gentile relations. I'm, I'm sure there are a few people in the congregation today that maybe do have some, some measure of Jewish ancestry in their past, but for the most part, we gather here as North American Christians, primarily as, as Gentile believers. But there are still plenty of things that can divide Christians one from another. Some of them are theological, though probably non-essential. Some are stylistic, some are behavioral. Any number of things can, can be lines along which Christians divide from one another. Sometimes not in a vicious way, but sometimes it still happens. But when we're willing to see that what unites us in Christ is bigger than what divides us from these things, then that shows that we have understood the mystery which is Christ. So what's the result? This kind of unity is noteworthy. It's a noteworthy thing when people unify around something that's bigger than what divides them. How so? Well, we probably think in terms of being a good witness to the world around us that's watching. People will notice that we have a kind of love and unity that's not usual in the world at large out there. And they may even be drawn to that. And there are places in the scriptures where that's talked about, right? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Let your light shine before others. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Scripture indeed says things like that, but that's actually not where Paul goes here. In, in verse 10, he says that the kind of unity that's on display when Jews and Gentiles are drawn together in one body, and I would say probably when anyone is drawn into one body, that dis, it displays the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers 
and the authorities in the heavenly places. Whoa, that's big. Later on, Paul describes these rulers and principalities and authorities in in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the armor of God and that we need to take our stand against these forces of spiritual evil in the heavenly places. Oh, that's, that's kind of big. And, and he says when we, when we come together to overcome this Jew-Gentile divide and overcome other major divides, that it's, it's a witness against the spiritual forces of evil? I don't think Paul would be eager for us to, to take some kind of a, an unhealthy interest in these spiritual forces of evil and, and hostile spiritual powers and spiritual warfare and all those kind of things. People, people get really fixated on that in some really unhealthy and even unbiblical ways. And, and that's not some kind of way we want to go down. But a real side effect of our unity together in Christ is that these hostile spiritual powers are put on notice. Right? When, in Paul's case, when Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together in unity it was a witness against the spiritual forces of evil that were out there in the heavenly places when young and old are worshiping together joyfully and I see that as I look out at our congregation the spiritual forces of evil are put on notice as a witness against them When people of different ethnic backgrounds worship together joyfully, the the principalities and powers are put on notice. When people of different denominational backgrounds can come together and worship together joyfully, the spiritual forces of evil are put on notice. These aren't the sort of things we typically think of when when we think of spiritual warfare. We might think, well, that doesn't look very exciting or, or, you know, there's no, nothing real remarkable looking about that it's just a thing friends so much of what we do even things we might not think that much of have profound spiritual implications whenever we set aside unimportant preferences because our unity in Christ is greater and bigger and more powerful and more important it is a win for the kingdom of God in a very real and profound and even cosmic sense what goes on here on a Sunday morning isn't just a, a take-it-or-leave-it thing that you can show up for and be like, oh, that was nice. Like, th- this, is, this is cosmic, shaking reality that can happen in this place with just your friends and neighbors on a Sunday morning. That's big. As we conclude, we're going to do another act of unity that puts the principalities and powers on notice because it draws us together. We're going to celebrate a meal, as Grace already mentioned, that Jesus instructed us to celebrate in remembrance of him. And we call it by various names, communion, the Lord's Supper. Some traditions even call it Eucharist. And that's maybe a bit of a high church kind of word. But what it means is thanksgiving. And it seems appropriate that we should celebrate this meal together on this day. In thankfulness, for all Christ has done for us, in thankfulness for all that we have in him, in thankfulness that we are participants in his promise, in thankfulness that we are drawn together as one body because of what Jesus has done for us. And as we partake together of these elements in just a few moments, may we remember 
that we are partakers together of God's promise, that he will be our God and we will be his people. And may we comprehend, such as it's possible, the mystery of our Christian faith. As Paul says elsewhere, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, the Gentiles, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And as our choir and our communion servers come forward, that's what we're going to do. We are going to proclaim